0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Paul Hannabrink, Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. He is the author of the new book, A Spectre Haunting Europe, The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press in 2018. Paul, thanks very much for being with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Brilliant. So first customary question on new books and Jewish studies, how did you come to write this book?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's actually, uh, for me, a long story. Um, it was something that uh, came into my mind actually um, already when I was working on my dissertation, which became uh, my first book on the idea of Christian nationalism in Hungary. Um, while I was in Hungary doing my research uh, on the dissertation in the 1990s, and then in the early 2000s when I would go back to do additional work, um, I noticed some very interesting correspondences between the kinds of language I was seeing in a lot of the sources I was looking at for that dissertation—language about uh, that, that that explicitly linked Jews to uh, the Bolshevik Revolution in Hungary in 1919, and also to the communist regime after 1945—and um, how you know this was a this was a, a very much a deeply rooted historical theme. And then I was also seeing in the public discourse at the time in, in Hungary this really sort of um, charged debate among people uh, looking back on the 20th century from their vantage point after 1989 of uh, the role that Jews had or did not have uh, to play in the history of communism uh, in the 20th century uh, of, that, of the country. Uh, and so I saw this very interesting dialogue between the past and the present. And I knew, uh, that this wasn't specifically a Hungarian phenomenon, that this kind of debate was going on in other places as well. And so I wanted to try to, um, get, get a purchase on the long durée of this idea, uh, this association of Jews with Bolshevism or, you know, what I'm calling the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism. Obviously, not only I, but many people call it that. Um, and uh, I wanted to do it in a, in, a, in a sort of European way, not just to, to, to do another focus just on a, a Hungarian national topic, but to try to get a sense of the ways in which this uh, idea circulated across borders and was picked up and imitated in from one place to another and passed uh, from one group to another uh, uh, around the continent and even ultimately across the Atlantic. And so that's how I came to think about a book book. Uh, on it, and I was able to start work on it once i uh finished that 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 earlier book.
1: Great, fantastic. So we might get into yeah the the contents of the book and um give the listeners a bit of a a tour through um how you've tackled these themes um so firstly, you sort of write about how the idea of judeo Bolshevism came about in response to the Russian Revolution and um, the ensuing civil war. Tell us, yeah, about the genesis of the myth of judeo Bolshevism.
2: Yeah, I mean, that that first chapter is really my approach to the problem of the genesis, because as I was thinking about how to start, what I decided very quickly I did not want to do is to try to go on some quest for um, the first utterance of anything that might be called Judeo-Bolshevism or the first association of Jews with revolution, because if you start to do that, you quickly start to see the association that is made in the late 18th century between Jews and the French Revolution. And then before that, um, you know, going well back into the medieval period and and earlier of of Jews with sort of, you know, disorder and, and unrest and the ideas that the world might be turned on its head. Um, and so rather than, than kind of doing, a a, a a genealogy that could very quickly take me back a very long time, I decided to look at its moment of explosion, um, in, in Europe, uh, in and around the time of, of, uh, the Russian revolution and, and the way in which I try to situate it, um, both in this chapter and and then the, in the second one is, is during the, the, the time of, um, uh, World War I and the revolutions that followed and to show the links that are made between wartime fears of Jewish subversion and Jewish disloyalty, which you can find in many different countries uh, in Europe, uh, and how quickly these kinds of fears morphed into fears that uh, the disloyalty, Jewish disloyalty might manifest itself in uh, Jewish re- revolutionary ambitions.
1: You then turn to look a bit at the interwar era and how Christian churches and nationalist and fascist movements in Europe mobilized the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism in their anti-communist politics. Um, Tell us a bit about this.
2: Yeah, well, in in this part of the book, I'm I'm really kind of interested in the um, different ways in which um, anti-communists approached or mobilized the myth of judeo-bolshevism for different kinds of purposes i mean you know maybe you know one thing to to give your listeners is, is just to start with you know wh- what is it this is you know a a, a conspiracy theory it's a, a variation on sort of the age-old uh, idea of jewish conspiracy that somehow jews are plotting to gain power um, not only in one place but around the world as a kind of global conspiracy Uh, And it, you know, is a way of making it very specific to some political uh, uh, phenomenon of the 20th century, blaming Jews uh, for the creation and spread of communism and also, therefore, ultimately for the crimes uh, committed by communist regimes. And so there is a, you know, a wide spectrum of anti-communist politics um, in the 1930s, uh, uh, you know, across the continent. Um, people who, you know, firmly believe, firmly convinced that communism is evil, and there is this very, you know, widespread language that associates Jews with it. Um, but there is, you know, some very real uncertainty about, you know, what it would mean if ev- if if everyone makes that the centerpiece of their. Um, Their anti-communist politics. Uh, does that mean that everyone is also uh, uh, agreeing to every other aspect of anti-communism? And this uh, really comes out in the nineteen thirties when you can start to see Nazi Germany positioning itself as, um, you know, the foremost bulwark against the spread of what Hitler, you know, quite openly calls Judeo-Bolshevism. Many fascists across uh, fascists across europe uh, enthused to this and 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 they 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 sign on to this idea of crusade and uh, so do many religious conservatives as, as, as well. but um one of the things I do try to show is that there is a you know very tiny voices within the um, uh, 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 Christian conservatives in europe um very small groups, especially among Catholics. Who are um, a little bit concerned about the racial implications of doing that, and prefer to think about anti-communism in 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 different ways, and ultimately come up with uh, the notion of totalitarianism as as a a better way to 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 express it. Uh, And so I I use um, Judeo-Bolshevism in this chapter as a way of exploring the 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 overlap, but also the cleavages among. anti-communists in in Europe at that time, showing in particular the deep um, uh, uh, investment that uh, the Catholic Church as an institution, also national Catholic churches in many different parts of Europe, have in the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, but also the uh, kinds of um, uh, concerns that that raises about whether or not they're becoming too close in other ways to fascist movements.
1: Right. So, yeah, you mentioned um, the particular way that Nazism, um, the Nazis took up this idea of Judeo-Bolshevism um, and refashioned it. Uh, can you tell us a bit uh, more about this and maybe a bit more about you also then go on to talk about how uh, there were sort of further changes in how the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism was um deployed by the nazis um after the invasion of the soviet union
2: yeah i mean i guess i can take the first part of your question first i mean one one, um sort of you know scene that i have uh in 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 the chapter on the 1930s is um the speech that uh, uh hitler gives um at uh the um uh, Nuremberg Party Rally uh, shortly after the Spanish Civil War has erupted, in which he talks about the evils of Judeo Bolshevism. At the very same time, within you know uh, uh, you know days, there's a meeting uh, in the Vatican where um, the Pope welcomes a bunch of uh, Spanish uh, 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 clergy and bishops uh, to, to the Vatican. Uh, and uh in which um you know the the Spanish clergy are there to try to get a kind of uh, uh you know support for uh their vision of what the Spanish civil war is about, in which they also use this language in in, in uh, among uh the spanish nationalists of uh, of a judeo bolshevik they would also add the word masonic plot or conspiracy um to overthrow the real Spain, and they're disappointed that the pope doesn't quite go as far in condemning uh communism in the language that they would like him to um uh as they would want and so uh you can begin to see this sort of um you know this question of of exactly how should uh commun how should communism be imagined as an enemy and how central to the imagining of communism as an enemy is uh is is this association uh that it has had with Jews and with Judaism um, and, you know, from that, I trace out the sort of um, uh, dissenting voices that, you know, within the 1930s and into the 1940s, there are not many of them to be sure, but they take on an outsized importance after 1945, because they're the ones who um, really can kind of set the tone uh, in, 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 in in the post-war era. Um you know, if we look then forward into the war, I mean, what one of the most interesting things about the Judeo-Bolshevik myth is the way in which it can become a kind of common ground on which different kinds of uh, fascist groups can work with uh, Nazi Germany, at least early on in the war, when it seems clear to everyone, inevitable that uh, Nazi Germany is going to win the war and that there will be some kind of new Nazi-imposed order in Europe, and you can find, you know, fascist organizations across, especially in Eastern Europe and occupied um, Eastern Europe, you, you know, Ukrainian nationalists, Lithuanian nationalists, who are very eager to work with uh, Nazi occupiers. Because they think it will serve their visions of ah of their own national future, uh, and the language in which they do this, and the language in which they can express these common goals and 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 act on them, is this language of Judeo Bolshevism. They can both, with the Nazis, see communists and Jews as being intertwined uh, uh, enemy groups who need to be eliminated. Which is why you can find so much support in during Operation Barbarossa for the kinds of um, uh, 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 mass killings that uh, are a feature of the invasion from the very first hours.
1: So turning from um, the war, you look at the post-war era and the way, uh, firstly, that communist governments had to deal with challenges to their authority by the entrenched association of Jews with communism, um, tell us a bit about this.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that you know I found really striking as I was reading about um, uh, the, the 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 relationship of of the communist regimes in in Eastern Europe, and uh, I should say that the ones I focus on most particularly are those of Poland, um, Hungary, and Romania. Although I do um, mention others at, at specific moments, um, was how much communist regimes had to deal with the legacy of the Judeo-Bolshevik myth as, as it had been used in uh, the politics of the region before the communists came to power. Uh, the people whom they were trying to win over uh, to the, the communist vision of the future, uh, on, on, whom, on whom the legitimacy of the communist project depended, uh, was it were were, were people, the populations uh, that you know, were quite familiar with the association of communism with Jews who were quite willing, many of them to see uh, Soviet occupiers and Soviet authority and, and, and the newly uh, you know, uh, strong uh, communist parties as being uh, uh, an alien and a foreign power, uh, which could then very easily be expressed as as a Jewish power. And so the communist regimes had to acknowledge that this was so, and uh, they had to somehow find ways to grapple with it. And so one of, you know, you see a, no, a variety of things. Um, you see them sometimes turning a blind eye to um, uh, anti-Jewish violence, uh, especially immediately after um, 1945. Um, uh, you see them condoning and, and at local levels even uh, uh, using uh well-known anti-semitic stereotypes to um, uh, to win over people. so you can see, for example, communist um, officials making distinctions between honest labor and dishonest labor uh, to win over the working class um, in a, in a in making the kinds of distinctions that would have been readily understandable to people uh, at the time as 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 um, you know, uh, a reference to, um, you know, the honest workers uh, who belong to the nation and, and those, you know, who do not, uh, uh, and and those who were alien and, and therefore Jewish. Um, you see uh, communist regimes finding ways to put uh, some of the most prominent Former fascists on trial and executing them in, in 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 people's courts, but then also finding ways to welcome in uh, many people whom they called quote unquote little fascists, uh, people who had been you know involved in, in lower levels in the former fascist regimes who. Um, could find their way into the, the 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 new era if they were willing to, you know, conform their biography or their sort of CV to 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 what was required of them. And so, you find former fascists, in, you know, entering into uh, communist party membership and being included um, in numbers that actually surprised um, uh, some communist leaders. There's a famous uh, quote by the. Uh, uh, Romanian communist, uh, 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 and she was she was Jewish too, um, Anna Pauka, who, uh, you know, was was surprised at just how many uh, 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 former uh, members of the Iron Guard uh, were admitted into the into the Romanian Communist Party, and, and she noted that that that, that the, the size of the number uh, took her by surprise. And uh, then, you know, so this, these these were the kinds of considerations that the communist parties faced um, as they were trying to establish their regimes and, and and trying to, to to establish its legitimacy in the first hours. Uh, going forward, there is a very real concern about the um, the number uh, uh, the, the, the 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 perception that the Jew. Jewish Communist Party members, especially at the top levels, um, were uh, making the entire um, uh, uh, system seem uh, illegitimate to people. And so you uh, find uh, people uh, who style themselves as national communists, Władysław Komulka in Poland, for example, um, who, uh, you know, Insist and quite openly that you know the the new communist regimes have to uh, you know uh, uh, connect themselves and root themselves more firmly in the the you know quote unquote native or national working people um, rather than turning to uh, foreign or alien elements uh, to lead them, and this was uh, you know a kind of strategy by which uh, they could force out the the the. Um, their opponents in the party, whom whom they described as cosmopolitan and uh, and it, which was another um, word for Jewish.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, that's all really interesting. Um, so you, you, you turn um, in the next chapter to look at the West um, during the same era mm-hmm. and how anti-communism was reimagined in part through a new idea of Judeo-Christian civilization. Mm-hmm. um so tell us a bit about this
2: yeah i mean this was uh something that that i um i i i was noticing in 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 some of this, the the text that i was reading and i sort of wrestled myself you know whether whether uh how and whether it was related and i decided that that in the end this was an important facet to the story um one of the things that's quite interesting and it's it's rooted most firmly in the United States, although you can certainly find manifestations of it, um, uh, elsewhere in Western Europe is, um, a, you know, sort of a migration. One way of, I, I think of it is the migration of this adjective Judeo from the Judeo Bolshevism to Judeo Christian civilization as a different way of expressing, um, uh, anti-communist politics and of the relationship of Jews, uh, to anti-communist politics. Um, in the uh United States in particular and you know during the war years and, and 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 afterwards there was a a, a sort of a very f- you know firm conviction that sort of took took uh root um, in um, the political establishment and also uh you know within sort of wider um i guess leading intellectual uh leaders that uh um, that the what communism's main evil what what it what its core was was its opposition to um the kind of values that were derived from religion and that um it you know by by setting itself up as a kind of opposing religion um it was destroying um the kind of uh foundation on which uh the values of of an ordered a liberal civil society were, were were built, which were religious values, um, and religious morals, and so, um. You know, there was a very cl- clear th- uh, notion that these were certainly to be found in the Christian traditions, but they could also be found uh, in in, among, uh, in the Jewish tradition as well. And so, the idea of Judeo-Christian civilization was a way of expressing the fact that, um there was a kind of common set of vague religious, you know, religious principles on which civil society was founded um, and which had the very, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, clear um, uh, uh, consequence that, uh, you know, Jews could definitely be included in the, in the anti-communist project. What you've, what, what's kind of interesting is that, um, you, you know, even if this is the most uh, evident in the, um, uh, United case of the United States, and and then in the ways in which they try to bring this across the Atlantic after the war, uh, in some of their um, uh, uh, I guess re-education uh, campaigns uh, of the late 1940s and early 1950s, um, you find that this does have a kind. This does have a kind of echo in the um, uh, a very particular small group of uh, conservative Christians in the late 1930s who are trying to wrestle their. Way through uh, 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 imagining what anti-communism might look like that was not founded on on a kind of racial idea and uh, that might include an opposition to Nazism as well as sort of two twin totalitarian evils and um, you know as they try to do this one of the ways that they uh, draw this distinction is by is by saying that um, uh, you know Nazism is a kind of Racial idolatry um, that uh, is um, uh, contrary to uh, uh, basic shared you know Christian principles which they acknowledge were originally derived from uh, you know J- uh, uh, Jewish origins. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that there was a tremendous sort of rush to um, uh, rescue Jews during the Holocaust, for example. it's It's really a very intellectual debate about the place of race and about the role of Jews in Christian civilization. But it is a kind of opening, if you like, uh, that, uh, you know, gets a very different kind of um, centrality uh, in the years after the war, after um, you know, Nazism has been uh, definitively defeated, and after the sort of fascist alternatives are, are off the table in, in in most places in Western Europe, then you start to see this language resonate more clearly with this sort of Judeo Christian idea um, as the way to imagine anti communism.
1: Great. So um, finally, you look at how the ideas of Judeo Bolshevism have been resurrected um, post nineteen eighty nine in struggles over memory in Eastern Europe. Uh, so tell us a bit about this.
2: Yeah, I mean, this, this is in some ways the, 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 the chapter that reflects, you know, one part of the initial, um, my initial impetus to, to explore this project because, you know, uh, it, it is very striking that um, uh, the issue of Judeo-Bolshevism and of, of the connection of Jews to communism um is live most vividly now in Eastern Europe in debates over the past um and especially in debates over the Holocaust and over the history of the Holocaust and how the Holocaust should be remembered. Um, one of the ways in which uh, many on the right try to uh, minimize or displace the significance or importance of Holocaust memory is by uh, saying, well, you know' Uh, Jews committed crimes uh, as communists, and there is a kind of a cause and effect relationship. And so, that cause and effect relationship between violence against Jews and Jewish communist violence against, um, you know, against the, the sort of the local nation, I guess is the way they would put it, um, uh, y- you know, have this kind of effect of feeding on each other, and that the Holocaust has to be understood in, in, in that kind of context. Um, and that has the very real uh, consequence of um, serving as a, a kind of um, way of signaling opposition to uh, what I think is the sort of civic project behind Holocaust memory. That is to say, remembering the Holocaust is not simply an exercise in historiography. There's a there's a uh, uh, there's a history of its creation as as a as a as a, as a goal, which I, I try to. Um, uh, sketch a little bit in this chapter, um, so that remembering the Holocaust is 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 about uh, you know things that we might loosely describe as sort of liberal values in society that it, it is connected somehow with um, ideals of multiculturalism, ideals of respect for human rights, and and that you know remembering the Holocaust is a kind of shorthand for these things. Um, many nationalists believe that. Um, you know the, the, these ideals of multiculturalism and respect for human rights are things that have been uh brought from the west for example, through the european union uh and that they do not take into account um local national conditions and the specificities of natural- national history and so uh, you know reframing Holocaust memory in this kind of um Relational way to the crimes of Jewish communism is one way of pushing back more generally um, at the broader liberal project that um, uh, Holocaust memory, you know, kind of uh, uh, signals or, or signifies. Uh, and so for that reason, I, you know, it seems to me that it's, it's, you know, it, it expresses itself in, in debates about books, but you know, these, these debates about books like Jan Gross's Neighbors, for example, you know, have these, you know, much wider social resonance as well. And I think that social resonance has to do with, um, the kind of, you know, uh, uh, deep ambivalence about, uh. The wider significance of holocaust memory that is that is is fairly um widespread across the right in um, in many societies, particularly in eastern europe
1: yeah that's all really interesting um so thanks very much for um giving us sort of a brief tour through the sort of central ideas and um themes um in the book um I am interested to ask you about what the reception has been um for your book because yeah obviously as you mentioned uh it does come out uh i guess particularly maybe in the uh us context the very um uh, the the political the political importance i suppose or the the political contemporary political resonances um are certainly uh um, very obvious so Yeah. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, how
2: it's been received, that would be awesome. Uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, uh, you know, quite, quite simply quite, quite, quite um, flattered and gratified by uh, how, how well it's been received. And I think, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't, Take I can't take any credit for the sort of moment in which it came out. I mean, I began to work on this. I began to think about this book, you know, already as I said earlier in the nineteen nineties. And I really began working on it in earnest, uh, you know, after my first book came out in two thousand six. And so I was working on this, you know, through two thousand six to two thousand, you know, tens, right. And um, you know, it's it's really uh, uh, you know in in the last two years or so, um, three years. Uh, that you know since 2016 that that you know you really start to see this resurgence of um uh, you know what is now being called you know the alt right or the new writer, you know um in, in the United States and elsewhere um and one you know feature of it has been and you saw this on display um in the rally in charlottesville um, in the attack on the synagogue in pittsburgh pennsylvania uh in the attack uh on jews and uh, in Poway, California is this, uh, you know, resurgence of, um, fears and, 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 uh, of, of a, of a global Jewish conspiracy. And, um, I think, you know, what my book is, it's not a sort of a diagnosis of the moment of, you know, of, of our present, but it is, I think a very, um, um uh, rich examination of, one very specific historical manifestation of this of this you know fear of a global Jewish conspiracy, and I think by seeing how it can operate and how it can be appropriated, um, and how it has been used, because I think that is important sort of how people use it and what it means to them when they do use these anti-Semitic stereotypes, what they think they're saying when they do this, and what they think they're doing when they do this, um, we might get some purchase on on why these. Um, uh, these 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 stereotypes and, 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 and these antipathies seem to be back now um, in, in, in certain ways, and why, for example, um, a figure like George Shore seems to play this outsized uh, you know role in the uh, imaginations of so many nationalists when they, when they uh, decry globalization and they you know lament all of the evils that globalizations bring with it, you find the face in the figure of, of George Soros coming up very often. Now, clearly George Soros is, you know, quite the opposite of a communist for sure, for sure. But there is this kind of, you know, sense that he is somehow, you know, a, a symbol of this conspiratorial thinking um, that has had a very long history and, 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 and whose twists and turns, the twists and turns of that history, I think are worth, worth revisiting and worth reflecting upon.
1: Absolutely. so, Yes, definitely very timely and um, I think important um, intervention. So um, definitely thanks very much for talking to us uh, about your book today. Um, Just before we let you go, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about uh, what you're working on next.
2: Yeah, honest. To be honest with you, I've I've uh, only just begun uh, to think about this since this sort of you know consumed a better part of a decade of my scholarly life. Um, but uh, you know, if I if I might be honest, I, I I spent so much time thinking about this that I'm I'm I, I began wondering about sort of the other side of things, and so now I'm really uh, been looking most closely of late at um, uh, people who describe themselves in the '30s and '40s as anti-fascist. And uh, what became of them uh, in various places um, after, uh, after 1945 and what became of the idea of anti-fascism in uh, 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 different parts of Europe, uh, both East and West, uh, once the Cold War descended uh, on the continent. So that's the theme that I'm exploring now and I'm looking for ways to sort of uh, dig into it uh, in, 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 uh, in, in more detail.
1: Oh, wow, that sounds really brilliant. Um, So, well, well, we definitely hope to have you on the show again um, to talk about uh, hopefully the eventual uh, book or um, project. Um, But, yeah, for now, thanks very much for being on the show. Um, So you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies um, with your host, Max Kaiser. And today with us we had Paul Hannabrink. Professor of History and Jewish Studies at Rutgers University. And he talked to us about his new book, A Spectre Haunting Europe, The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press in 2018. Thanks for listening.
2: Thank you.